Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Typically, I focus my shows on a single issue, but today I find myself with a difficult but happy problem. I have a guest and a co-host who are brilliant, original, and contrarian on a wide range of topics. Billionaire investor and author Ken Fisher started with $250 and built a $100 billion money management firm. And to get a clue as to why he's been so successful, look to some of his book's titles. The only three questions that still count, debunkery, and markets never forget, but people do. Also joining me today to co-host is author and economist John Tamney, old friend and many-time guest. He's director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and is the editor of Real Clear Markets. John's contrarian book titles include The End of Work and Who Needs the Fed? So in a bit of a departure, we're going to have a wide-range discussion on investing, philanthropy, Donald Trump, forced management, populism, and life success strategies. A bit more about Ken Fisher. Ken founded Fisher Investments in 1979 and a CEO built it into one of the world's largest money management firms. His Forbes Portfolio Strategy column was the longest continuously running column in the magazine's history. He pioneered the investment analysis tool called the Price to Sales Ratio, which is now a core part of financial curriculum. Ken's principal hobbies? our lumbering, lumbering history, and Western conifer tree science. And along the way, without really aiming at it, Ken joined, joined the Forbes 400 list as the 200th richest American. Ken? John? Thanks for having me here, Bill. And John, I think you also pointed out he was the richest yes, Forbes columnist. Uh, Ken is easily the richest Forbes columnist in history, <laughs> I think, right here. So. Well, you wrote a column. Well, lots of superlatives, yeah. <laughs> right. One thing I want to talk about is your interest in... Uh, is in forests and uh, what you've done with the redwood trees, and you've you've endowed the first chair devoted to a single species. Uh, that was the uh, the redwood, the conifer, the redwood uh, trees in uh, in California. Yeah, and you've got a deep expertise in 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 forests and climate and the history of forests and lumbering climate change. What do you think? Is it happening? Is it man-made? Oh, I don't know anything about that. You don't know? Uh, well, I can tell you some things I know, and then there's what I don't know. I don't know more than I know. I mean, the world is a complex place. What I know <laughs> is that if you take Sequoia sempervirens, uh, coastal redwood, or Sequoia dendrogigantea, the uh, Sierra big tree, uh, they just don't give a darn. The trees. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've done the work to demonstrate that uh, right now, coastal redwoods in a increasing temperature world yes. are growing faster than they ever have before. Mm -hmm. And they're such a weird tree species that are so adaptable that they just quite literally don't care. Um, I mean, we started that project uh, with Save the Redwoods League on the concept that uh, there was a fear that climate might actually be an impediment to redwoods. I'm just going to reiterate, redwoods don't care. 
now, actually, for the most part, we now know that several other major tree species also mostly don't care, not as much as redwood, because there's no tree that's as adaptable as redwood. But um, the, the fear that once existed that the, this iconic West Coast tree species might get wiped out by a warming temperature, mm -hmm. that ain't happening. And uh, these trees are doing better than they ever have before. There is no threat there. Uh, what will happen to temperature in the future? That's a prediction, you know, and those predictions are tricky, particularly about the future. And uh, I, I think it's arrogant to presume you know. Well, so do I. And the other aspect of this, and your redwoods make the point, I believe, is that how do we know that the climate we have this moment today, 2019, is the ideal climate for anything? And that the climate's been changing for millennia. And how do you how do you how do you say no, we we got we have to freeze things now, and we need to make massive changes in society in order to make it exactly as it is. So so I, I I'm just going to go off in a different direction. We have almost no ability as a culture to deal with our wildlands at all, mm -hmm. regardless of what you think is the right thing to do. Our Bureaucracies don't work for that. Uh, we have a global network of different countries whose bureaucracies don't work for that. There's actually no, we can't make our own work. I don't know how we're going to make it work for all these other places. Mm -hmm. And um, at, in, in many ways, people are over, you, your point, which I think is right, is that there's this, in, in, in a lot of people's minds, there's a, snapshot in time of the way they think things were mm -hmm, and that's the mm -hmm. way they think things are supposed to be yeah um but even if you thought that was the way they were supposed to be we don't have any capability to turn them to that mm -hmm. we, we don't know how to do that collectively we don't have an ability we don't have the science let me just make a, a, a simple point i put a lot of time into a western conifer tree science uh in primarily the two redwood species but secondarily in douglas fir and and Sitka spruce, uh, and a plan to be doing more in several other species down the road, seriously. But there's a lot about the basic functioning of trees we just don't understand. I just want you to think about how important and simple trees are mm -hmm. to people. And then you take the statement, there's an awful lot about how trees actually function we don't understand. And now we're going to, for example, everything under the ground, we really don't know how it works. That's the final frontier of tree science. What really goes on in the roots? How does it really work there? We don't really know. And once you get that we don't really know, which most people don't want to say, then you sit there and say, how do you make successful prescriptions? And the answer is, well, if you don't really know how things work, you don't make successful prescriptions other than random luck. And now we're going to take something much more complex than big trees, which is the whole interface of everything, how it fits together in the phrase that was first being developed when I was young called ecology. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make that all work as a prescription that we're going to control? That's pretty arrogant, I think. John? Do you, do you think that there's a stock market story here? I mean, 44% of the world's population lives in coastal cities that the warmest say are going to go underwater. Is there something to be said that if this were true, if this were the threat that they say it is, that the stock market would reflect it? Or I don't know about the world. Let me let me let me talk about the land of the free and the home of the brave. Or do you think the forty-four percent would move? 
That too. Either way, it just strikes me that it's somebody, a market somebody signal. doesn't believe that it's changing that radically and that dramatically. Let me let me let me let me try to link this to uh, to America, Donald Trump, and Dwight Eisenhower. I think you can make that triangle pretty fast. Now, when I'm a boy in the 1950s, we start what is now this marvelous system that we have in America of highways and freeways. You had the first tranche of that, uh, you know, in, starting in 1915, which was very simple highways, but really the Eisenhower propulsion of infrastructure across the country built these marvelous roads. Now, those roads are really uh, some concrete and some rebar and some asphalt and some painted lines, and then we drive on them, right? And they work pretty good. I, I don't think most people disagree with that, even though a lot of people don't like cars, and that's fine. So now you sit there and you say, you get those rising uh, oceans. Now, those rising oceans are really going to have minimalistic impact on the western United States because mostly where the Pacific Ocean hits the western United States, you got cliffs. You follow that? You might subsume some of the beach, mm -hmm. but you run up to a cliff mm -hmm. other than where you have bays. Other than where you have bays, you run up to cliffs. So most of that line. Now you take the eastern United States. That's not true. Right? So the bigger problem is over here in this part of America. And, of course, a lot of people in the West just think if you'd round this part of America, it'd be a better country anyway. But that's a different point. Uh, but if you want to save this part of America, what you do is you do what Eisenhower would have done, which is take some of those freeways and just make little short ones and turn them up on their side all up the eastern seaboard. And we would call them, instead of freeways, dikes. And we would dike off that elevation, and the cost of that, on a relative sense, would be no greater than the cost of building the freeways in the first place, which in many ways is what should be the real cost of Donald Trump wall, if you follow that, because all you, a wall you is... Could, you could get the environmentalists making common cause with the Donalds, saying, well, look, I'll take... You give me my wall, I'll give you your dike. But, th think, <laughs> but they think, don't want th dikes. Think, think about the dike in a different way. If you yeah. take the expensive real estate that is the eastern United States, and if you forget about causality, if you have rising oceans, what we would do is want to protect that valuable real estate in the eastern United States, and then in the west where you have bays. And the way you would do that would be to dike it up, and the cost of that would be small compared to the value of that real estate. And we would do that. And we would do it as successfully as Eisenhower built freeways. And uh, at today's, particularly at today's low long-term interest rates, it would be a very feasible thing to finance. We aren't going there right here right now, but when people get excited about this stuff, forgetting about making the prediction of what will the oceans do or not do, the defense against a rising ocean is abundantly clear if you want to do it. You defend that valuable real estate, of which we have quite a lot of it, by putting in some dikes. And the opposition in an environmental sense is going to get overrun by the value of that real estate. Isn't the fact that it's valuable telling us that it's, it's not as much of a threat? It's valuable real estate. Yeah, it's, well, because it's going to remain valuable because you could build a dike yeah. and keep it valuable. Mm -hmm. markets, markets seem to be signaling that this is not a big issue. That it's eminently fixable. So, so what? what I'm just trying to conjure up the image of the dike around Mar-a-Lago, Palm Beach. <laughs> Probably the first one to get built. I know. <laughs> uh, 
the, the, <laughs> normally any you, you could think of rising oceans in a different way and associate that with the phrase a natural disaster. And when you think of what natural disasters do, they've always had the biggest negative impact uh, in uh, undeveloped areas where the real estate isn't worth much and they can't do much to defend themselves, whether it's earthquakes, uh, whether it's uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, the biggest damages for the most part in terms of human tragedy, not that the ones we have, like the recent ones we had in Houston, weren't tragic. They were. But the biggest tragedies, human life and destruction, are typically in places that don't have the ability to defend May themselves. I, can, can you accept a compliment? No. I know you can't. But you, know, you may be the most interesting and contrarian person I've ever met, and that is really fascinating to sit here and talk with you about this. There's a How reason you, I'm being so quiet today. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, we, we, I, let's check our okay, watch here. We've no, got, no, you got no, three no, hours. No, but now you me, just politely told me to shut up. <laughs> okay, well, no, but, the, but, look, but let's tie this back into your contrarian views into investing. How has that helped you build your firm? So because it obviously has. What, what capital markets theory says is, in a simple sense, that markets are pretty efficient at pre-pricing all widely known information. Uh, and therefore, those things that we all talk about, discuss, debate, and what have you, are uh, pre-priced into markets as efficiently as they can be. And that if you try to outguess those based on the same stuff that everybody else has, you'll be right sometimes, wrong more often, and overall do worse than if you made no decisions. Uh, this is an argument against uh, kind of reading the newspaper and taking a bet. Uh, so, therefore, what finance theory would say is the only real basis for making a bet is believing that somehow, some way, you know something other people don't know, mm -hmm. which you either know um, by <clears throat> some, what in America, but not all of the world, is an illegal activity called insider information, or you know by being able to just figure something out by looking at something that other people don't look at. And so what I've believed is counter to the phrase contrarian, uh, which is usually applied to mean that if everybody believes this will happen, the reverse will happen. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of it more like a clock. If everybody believes noon will happen, something someplace between about 2.30 and uh, you know, maybe 9.30, 10.30 happens, does it mean because everybody believes 12 will happen, 6 will happen? No. But something else happens. That part that everybody believes 12 o'clock will happen, that's been what's pre-priced. Something else happens. So what you do is you think through what does everybody believe. You wipe out that because it's been pre-priced. And then you think about what the other possibilities are, and you try to conclude based on some form of rationality what you think the most likely one or ones are. And you look for things that other people don't know. And you know, let me just give you a, a really simple example without getting into the details. Every idiot in the world said that quantitative easing is flooding the system with money. Now, if you believe that, then you would say, gee, well, we have a system for measuring money. Where is that money? And in fact, if we flooded the system with money, should not the quantity of money have gone up by a lot? And in fact, if you look at the standard measures of the quantity of money in this economic expansion, they've grown at the slowest rate in yeah. any economic expansion in measured history. Monetary so therefore, about one time. Therefore, <laughs> the quantity of money did not go up. We did not flood the system of, with money. And yet you still have these people running around saying, 
we flooded the system with money. Therefore, we should have inflation. Those inflation fears, of course, have been completely wrong this whole time. And I go to a point that I say over and over again, which is that humans are slow to learn. That's what behavioral psychology teaches us. Humans as a group are slow to learn. And so keep making these same mistakes, like not getting that the third year of a president's term hadn't been negative since 1939. Uh, gee, you would think that would bias people at the beginning of the year, this year, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. not be bearish, except if you look at the beginning of the year, the fourth quarter of last year scared the hell out of people. So <gasps> that's what they do when yeah. they get scared. Uh, they don't say, oh, it's the third year of a president's term. It's probably going to be a good year. Um, there's these things you can find by looking at what people don't look at. That's, mm -hmm. that's my take on contrarianism. Mm -hmm. Look for what people don't look for. How do you translate that, that into $100 billion under management? It's real simple. You look at those kinds of features. Oh, let me give you a current example. Yeah. Uh, all of the uh, people, like some of the people that you know uh, and respect, that think that uh, everything's about the Fed and that, in fact, um, the Fed fiddling around with interest rates uh, which they always do and can never control themselves wrong, uh, and almost always do wrong, not always do wrong, but almost always do wrong, that, that their raising of rates uh, would be catastrophic. Now, I'm going to go and make the point you're never going to see a recession in America unless you see a global recession. You're never going to see a recession to the rest of the world without a recession in America. And in today's world that people don't fully appreciate, monstrously large global banks and corporations can borrow one country and lend in another country faster than I can dial a number on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so in a world where you can borrow at zero rates in Europe or in Japan and lend at same duration higher rates in America and hedge the currencies with futures that fast, mm -hmm that currency carry arbitrage is going on all the time. And while I am not of view that it's a great thing, I think it's a bad thing for our central bank to be raising rates the way they were last year. When they do that, they create the environment. That the borrowing doesn't come from America. The borrowing comes from overseas and gets lent into America. It doesn't mm -hmm. stop America at all. People miss that because they're not thinking global first, U.S. second. They're thinking like we are walled in somehow as mm -hmm. if we're a standalone economy with this little thing we call imports and exports that's kind of tangential. But in reality, yeah. money flows around the world like water runs downhill and fast. And mind you, Jane's Laundry uh, service can't do that, but Exxon can, Google can, Microsoft can, uh, and you know, J.P. Morgan can, Ascentendar can, and on and on and on. And enough of them can that they will, and it happens, and... That, that's my point of view, just everybody thinks this stuff, think, try to think through how it really works, and then how do you apply that into the marketplace? If you know it doesn't work like that, and it really works like this, what does that imply for capital markets? And of course, one of the points that I make that m most people don't make is $100 billion isn't really very much money if you think that through in terms of the size of global capital markets, 
you know, the equities we, market, what, $23 trillion or You're talking about the U.S. Yeah. I'm talking about the world again. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the way I would say that is <clears> that, you know, I've got about eight-tenths of 1% market share. Mm-hmm. If, you, if I was a car maker and I had eight-tenths of 1% market share, people would think I was nothing. You mm-hmm. follow that? If I was a chemical maker and I had eight-tenths of 1% market share, people would think I was nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, I am nothing. That's the part that people miss. Because it's $100 billion must be big. It's $100 billion must be big. Not in terms of size relative to the scale of what we're talking about. It's not big at all. It's so little. as a macro investor, I mean, one of the things about some of the hedge funds that were special situation hedge funds, they got so big they couldn't take positions and meet mid-cap companies and make any difference. As a macro investor, though, $100 billion is a drop in the ocean, and you can and work, I have no you can work your strategies without uh, I have no, with, constra- with no constraints. If, yeah. if, if you're a fund and you're committed to being in this little slice of the world and you yeah, get too yeah. much money, you can't get outside that slice of the world, yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah. But I, I have no constraints. Um, now, mind you, by definition, I couldn't take all the money and put it in Minamar. Couldn't put it in? Minamar, the country formerly oh. known as uh, Burma. Okay, Burma. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, don't, you, you don't see a lot of people running around talking about Minamar min, min, signs on the highway, right? Um, you know, we get some Minamar shave signs on the highway. You don't see that, um, but Burma shave—that was always wonderful. Uh, philanthropy. Last topic I want to talk about. I, we, although we're, we're running a bit out of time, but I don't really care. This is interesting, so let's keep going. Uh, the Gates Foundation's given away forty-five billion dollars. Not to me, I promise you. Well, it's not as much as, anyway, I won't do the scope, the scope of what it is. What do they have to show for it? Can I don't know. Measure? I've never looked at what they have. Okay. Well, John, do you, I mean, I'm, it's a rhetorical question. I want to explore what you think the benefits of philanthropy can be or can't be. Philanthropy is bad. It's immoral. It's bad for humans. I got this figured out when I was very young. Uh, Literally, it hit me in about 45 minutes one day. Once you actually get that in the long term, the capital markets pricing mechanism trades off optimization of scarce resources between the short term and the long term as efficiently as it can be done, then anything that takes resources away from that suboptimizes. Once you get that concept in your brain that it suboptimizes away from what's good for humans in the trade-off between the short-term and the long-term, you realize that philanthropy is one of those things. It's not the most immoral thing in the world. There are other, many more immoral things. But it suboptimizes. It, people who give money in philanthropic ways do it feeling good about it and thinking they're doing good. But they're thinking they're doing good and therefore feeling good about it when they're not actually because they're actually, they they don't get the notion that if they just did nothing with the money, nothing. They wouldn't do nothing. They'd put it in a bank or something. And then through financial disintermediation, it would work its way back out through that capital markets pricing mechanism to get optimized. And as soon as you move away from that optimization of the allocation of those scarce resources, you actually have, I mean, if I give you the money right now, that's good for you. There's no question about that, right? Maybe. Uh, but we could tell some stories about people that have gotten money in the short term and it would be bad for them. But 
in reality, you can see how it might be good for you if I give you the money right now. But in terms of what's good for society in the long term, think of it as when you sub-optimize, you're also taking away somebody's opportunity to be the thing that creates the next one of these or the next breakthrough in a drug or the next thing that may be impacting people not for another 10 years or 20 years, but the capital markets pricing mechanism optimizes that trade-off of scarce resources between across the time spectrum. Well, let's break it down. Bad. You mean bad in an economic sense or bad, bad in a moral sense? Bad for people because in a short and long-term sense, yeah. it creates less beneficence. In the world that my grandfather came to in 1875 when he was born in San Francisco and lived <clears> through until he died in 1958 uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, he saw such incredible change for things that benefited people that if he had described that to his grandfather when he was a boy, his grandfather would have thought that he was a complete fruitcake. All created by the private sector through innovation, entrepreneurship, and building of businesses uh, yes. that met needs. Yes. Okay. And that continues at a very fast pace, Yeah. including things like this and then the things that are like this that we haven't conceived yet. And it's those things we haven't conceived yet that sub-optimization deprives us of. And going back to the basket principle that you're very familiar with, we may never, ever see if we deprive ourselves of them. So the related notion is that wealth, capital needs to be in the strongest hands that knows best what to do with it. Yeah, knows what to do with it. I, I wouldn't quite go that way. Financial disintermediation says that if you don't know what to do with it, you still put it in some place like a bank or you make a loan or you buy a treasury bill or something, right? Well, that's knowing what to do with and it, though. It's no, saying, no, no, but that's not because you're going to allocate it well. Financial disinformation takes that money and reallocates it into hands that will maybe just be the entrepreneur that doesn't have a clue what he's doing, and there's a whole long line of them, and they each get their little bite at the trough, but this one creates this. And that changes the world. There's information either way, even even if these ideas. What do you fail. mean information? Uh, so Ray Dalio says is worried about inequality. He's got twenty billion dollars. Invest it in the most audacious cancer cures, transportation advances possible. Even if you fail, we're that much closer. But I am in favor of inequality. I just want yes. people to get the notion that inequality is a good good thing. So let's just think this through. Uh, the richest guy in the world is supposed to be this guy, Bezos, right? And when Bezos started Amazon and built it up to become the richest guy in the world, did he contribute to inequality or not? He did. He is, in fact, the icon of inequality. We should want 17 more Jeff Bezos creating new versions of bigger and better things that benefit people because in doing that, he gives all the things that those entities are, whether it's Steve Jobs giving us this, or Bezos giving us that. It's the ones that haven't been done yet that further create inequality. The bottom is always zero. The bottom will always be zero. We will never get away from zero. All we can do is redistribute to give them stuff. If that makes sense to you? Oh, yeah. The people at the bottom will always be at zero, and all you can do in a productive sense is to... to, to but think of all of the people on the high end that Bezos created as Bezos and crew. Think of all the people on the high end 
that Gates created as Gates and Crew. It's that part that does the never yet done. And the never yet done is a hard part for people to get, but the never yet done that succeeds mm -hmm. is the part that creates income inequality. And we should want more of that. We should want more, some new version of some different thing than this that has as much impact on the world as it's had. And we should want more and more, which by definition brings you more inequality. Well, I agree, but how do you make a political argument along those lines? Because the I don't equality, do political arguments. Well, I can I can see that, but it's. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I don't think you you're, have to do but you're anything. Getting it, you're all getting you have it to do is let yeah. all the all the wing nuts in the world see well, if they you, can raise uh, capital and start up some crazy uh, business. Another way, and if they succeed, it works. And if they don't succeed, uh, uh, as John kind of points out, somebody else learns something from the failure, and then they go try to do some crazy thing. So, in other words, uh, you would agree with the statement that maybe there are top 50 entrepreneurs in time created more wealth or more good than all the politicians put together ever? Sure. Absolutely. Um, Except maybe somebody like Churchill that kept England out of no, the No, 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 no. I, I say that differently. We, we do need to... The fundamental feature of government in its most important form is to keep bad guys from running over us. That's and, and that's effectively the f function that Churchill did as a defensive function. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's important, the defensive function that keeps the bad guys from coming as hordes and taking all your stuff and destroying the ability to create the new things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we do need that. We can't have the libertarian view of uh, no, no defensive military. And in that regard, the fortitude of a Churchill uh, in a tough time allows this world to prevail. I can't quote this exactly, but in one of the State of the Union addresses that President Obama said, he, he, he said that the government created uh, fracking, and he <laughs> intimated that the government created the integrated circuit. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, and when he said that, Jack Kilby had recently uh, passed away, and Noyce had been dead, you know, for a long time. I think Noyce died, if I remember right, in, in like 1990. And, you know, they'd have to be rolling over in their grave to think that the government created the integrated circuit, and and the notion that the government created fracking, um, this, that's not the way these things happen. Well, that's just tied into you didn't build that. I mean, that was the, that was the whole notion of, of uh, that uh, entrepreneurs couldn't succeed as, as truckers unless somebody built the roads and the roads were built by the government and therefore the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Let me make another point on philanthropy. So I always say philanthropy is immoral. It's bad for humans. When I say that to people that believe in philanthropy, they never, ever, ever ask why. Never. I mean, I've said that so many times to people in philanthropy, and they just change the subject. I just want you to think about the implications of them not wanting to address why might it be bad. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the fact is, people who give to philanthropy believe it's good. It makes them feel good. They have good intent. I mean, I'm accepting all that cold. Mm -hmm. right? uh, the question is, in aggregate, does philanthropy help people relative to what would happen if that money was just stuck in a bank somewhere? And the answer is it hurts people relative to what would happen if it was just stuck in a bank somewhere. Now, I've given away millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, and I always feel guilty when I do. And when I do, when I give away money, it's always for something that is effectively me engaging in my personal interests 
at the expense of humanity, like giving away money to support tree stuff, mm -hmm. tree science. Uh, I gave away a lot of money to Johns Hopkins Medical. To, to give the money to Johns Hopkins Medical, I'm doing that tied to family connections to Hopkins and other things that relate to that, and I'm feeling guilty because I know I'm not actually doing good. I know I'm just supporting some of my own petty issues. Well, you know, there's an argument on the left that private philanthropy shouldn't exist because it's, it's aggregating to wealthy individuals doing the things you're describing, and instead that money ought to be funneled through the government. Which is even more immoral. Okay, well, I just want to make that clear. So in an ideal world, let's just pretend you were king. How would this, we'd have, we'd have capital allocation in the private sector, the, the, we'd have government the, that the would be... The first thing that I would do if I was king is crown my wife queen. She would like that. I, I don't know. She would like that? Not, she, she may not. She, well, she may regret it really fast. Okay. You, did, you, 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 you saw what they did? You, you, you had uh, Mr. Moore on, and you saw what they did to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you sit there and you say, who wants to go and subject themselves to that? Well, that's another topic. It's very hard to get good people to want to go into government because of what you got to go through to get, uh, you know. In this day and age, yeah. to get through that gauntlet, before you get through that gauntlet, they are going to turn you into a this and a that. You're a sexist. You're a rapist. You're a murderer. You're a pillager. You're a looter. Uh, you're a you name it. And they're going to find some photograph of you uh, from when you were in a costume in a high school play and turn it into uh, something that's, uh, out of context and different than it is and turn you into a bloody disaster to keep you from being able to, to get into that office to try to discourage people. And I think that discouragement works. Because mm, who wants their kids subjected to that? Yeah. Who wants their spouse subjected to that? I felt very sorry for, for Moore that he got attacked in those ways. And... I don't know what I don't know where this ends. I mean, we're deconstructing everybody on both sides, so it's going to be. Yep. So this. Did is... you know that Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi are just evil? <laughs> <laughs> I read about it in the newspaper. Okay, we've got to wind this up. This has been so interesting. I'm so thank glad you for having you're me, here. Bill. Yeah, this fun. is very interesting, and uh, you've got a great place here. A great, uh, great thing you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm trying to bring interesting people into the world, and you are one of the most interesting people I've met. John, any, any final uh, thoughts here? Uh, you've been, you've you've been a witness to the prosecution. Because as anyone who's watched me on the show before, I always want to talk. But uh, <laughs> when Ken's here, I just like to listen. I learn so much. So I'm, I'm just glad to have been a part of this one. Okay, Ken, thank you. Thank you. It's been you. fantastic, and uh, hope we'll have you back on because I think we could continue this for a while. It'd be great. Great. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com apply. 
That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.